Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. Hello, listeners. Uh, what has been rattling around in my philosophy theology brain lately? Well, it's yet another churchianity theme that I've been kind of smacked in the face with of late. It is the topic of piety. What is piety? First things that rise to my mind about piety are typically the not just the kind of church traditions, but the gaudiness of some churches, particularly churches like Catholic churches. As far as I understand them, this is also true of Eastern Orthodox churches. It's the prettiness, the stained glass windows, the statues, the crucifixes, the priestly robes, and so on and so forth. But what else is piety? Piety is essentially the sense of holiness that comes through, what would you call them, extra-religious acts, perhaps. You're trying to be particularly, not showy, but stringent. It is showy, but stringent with how you discipline yourself for holiness and so on. So it's the kind of person who won't just limit themselves to um, vows of celibacy, but they won't even engage in sexuality in any way, shape, or form. They uh, will not look at certain images or magazines, or perhaps you have the sort of person who makes a vow of a certain kind of diet, and therefore they will refuse to eat meat, or maybe they refuse to eat veggies for all I know for the rest of their lives, not that that would be a good idea, but they see themselves as doing something for God by subjecting themselves to some sort of discipline. Fasting, at least food fasting, is a, is a similar sort of thing. Um, or fasting, perhaps, uh, video games or certain kinds of other entertainment. What is piety? Piety, another example, would be defining certain words in ways that make them seem very holy, very high-minded. You've heard me talk about it before in this podcast, but I think that piety is really the somewhat good motive for why faith is defined as something that is so ethereal, so removed, so high, so lofty, so unreachable. It's this idea of going against evidence, this idea of something that can only be attained through perhaps holiness. Perhaps it's piety that leads to the pious definition of faith. It's something that can only really be grasped if you're spiritual. And you understand that these things are only possible with faith, and so on and so forth. The way I see piety is kind of in a double lens. Piety, as far as I can understand the concept, is the goal of making religiousness or spirituality or godliness or something like that attractive. That is what it is, at least in its purest form. And I think that as far as that is concerned, piety is good. 
you want, of course, if you believe that you have something of value and you are sharing something that will add value to the other person's life, it certainly helps, at least as far as your sales pitch, if you make that thing attractive. You want it to look good. So the architecture of churches, perhaps even the stained glass windows, the art in general, statuettes, um, just prettiness. And not just that, but how about the quality of music, uh, the quality of your instruments, the price tag, perhaps even on these things. I do not believe necessarily to be bad if it is accomplishing the goal of making religion, making Christianity, making goodness, holiness, attractive to people. And those sorts of things, that, that which I just listed, impressive architecture, expensive stuff, is going to attract only a certain set of people, not certainly everyone. A lot of people will in fact be turned off by that kind of a presentation. But when you go to the evangelicals and when you go to the non-denominational churches and so on, they don't really care about that kind of godliness. Well, they have their own kinds of godliness. In order to be a good Christian, you have to behave thus and thus. You have to do these extra things. And when you do those things, you are really a Christian. Maybe they'll try to quote verses like from the book of James, true religion is this, it's taking care of the widows and orphans. James, who was so big on actions in order to prove your religion, in order to, actually, no, not to prove your religion, to uh, prove your faith. Faith without works is dead, as he said. They won't necessarily be doing that, although that might be part of what they're doing. They think that, though often they will not say it, that you need to go out on a missions trip, or you need to get involved in this church activity, or whatever, whatever, whatever. And that is their piety, and that is the proof of their faith, their goodness, their Christianity. Again, in none of this am I necessarily saying that I consider it bad in and of itself. But a lot of these things, if not all of these things, have at certain points gone to the opposite extreme. I like to call it suicidal piety. This kind of quote-unquote piety is the sort of activity in religion that takes it so far beyond regular human life that it becomes untouchable, unreachable, unrecognizable, unrelatable. It's the sort of piety that essentially, well, it's the sort of arrogance, really, that essentially separates common people from any real access to faith, to Christianity, to what is colloquially called goodness among Christians. One example of piety of this sort comes actually from the early church. When the Gospels were first written, this is recorded by um, Eugene Peterson. I can't remember specifically in one book, but I've gone through it on audiobook one time. And this story really sticks with me, and I think this is one of the reasons why. In the early church, there were uh, about 300 words recorded in the Gospels that nobody could make heads or tails of. They were enough removed from the language that they didn't really know it that well. They had to go through 
uh, translation already at this point. Of course, it was already getting translated into many languages, I'm sure. But whatever the case, there was around 300 words that they couldn't make sense of. And to try to essentially make peace with these words, there was a camp among the Christians. There was another camp. I can't remember what they believed exactly. I'd have to go back into the book to remember this. But one of the camps specifically believed that these 300-odd words were Holy Spirit words. They were so elevated, they were so special, they were so spiritual that nobody could possibly understand the meaning. They were too heavenly and too far removed. If you guys are noticing a little uh, voice from a certain anime character that I'm doing right now, you would be exactly correct, but I won't go into it. Anyways, these words were so special that they were purposefully put in here so that nobody could possibly understand them. Now... About, uh, I think it was somewhere around a couple to a few hundred years later, in an archaeological dig in an Aramaic town, I think closely bordering two countries, this is as far as, as exactly as I can remember the story as presented by Eugene Peterson, they found on particularly papyrus paper, which was still preserved, um, and typically the sorts of notes that were used for passing notes from one person to another, or maybe receipt paper for a purchase, that kind of thing. They found 99 plus percent of these words. What were these words? Drum roll, please. Common street speak. Common street slang. Almost all 300 odd words were found. And they were just common terms. So what had happened during the interim? Why were these words lost? They were lost, in fact, because they were so common to the speech of people that they were not elevated words enough to be used in historical accounts of other kinds. They were preserved in the Gospels, of course, because the scholars and the scribes of the Gospels were so disciplined that they had to record it verbatim. It was to them holy, as I would agree, so therefore it had to be exact. So the language did not change. What this implies is that Jesus and the disciples and those people surrounding them, including the people who wrote those Gospels in the first place, were using commoners' speech. But the histories of the same languages that were recorded at the same time were using elevated language of kings and priests and highfalutin people, those of the higher classes who had the elevated words. The disconnect was not pious speech, it was common speech. To me, this story stands out because it flies in the face of high religion. It shows that what Jesus actually was doing during his time was meeting people where, when, and in the language that they were at. And it didn't reduce him one iota. The greatness of the way in which Jesus spoke and presented himself is that it was so easy to digest. 
Yes, he still spoke in analogies and parables and that kind of a thing, and he makes it very clear why he did that. Part of the reason why he did that, as he specifically points out, was to keep the high-minded people out. Because what he did, also in his stories, and this is not known by enough people today, most of his stories were the kinds of stories that were shared in common families by common people to display commonly known points. It's like catchphrases phrases the way we use them today. Um, to kill two birds with one stone. It's not that simple, but it was kind of similar. It's trying to make a point through a relatable phrase or story. We actually use, in Christian circles, the story of the prodigal son for a fairly similar reason. Although it's not actually the reason why Jesus told it in the first place. You'd have to go back to an earlier podcast for that. This same kind of motive, I think, is what has inspired, well, no, not inspired, but really corrupted the Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Evangelical Protestant Church, well, the Protestant Church in general, to make the same kinds of mistakes. They want so much to, quote, honor God, that they separate themselves from both God and people. The other example that I used earlier was the example of how people define faith. The way I define faith continues to get simpler and simpler. And this is for the same reason. It needs to be accessible. I'm trying to imitate my Lord. I'm trying to imitate those who I respect the most. And those who I respect the most are philosophers like C.S. Lewis, also kind of a theologian, who managed to take highfalutin language and make it accessible to common people. Look at the Chronicles of Narnia. Anyway, my definition of faith is simply to take that leap into that which is unknowable on the basis of that which is known. In other words, you know that somebody is faithful enough to the point that you are willing to take a leap. You are willing to, as we say in common speech, put faith in that person. In what area? In the unknown. What What is that? The future maybe, maybe a task that you've given them, but you can't observe them doing it. You can't make sure that they do it right. You have faith in them that it will be done right. Or you have faith in somebody for the future. Perhaps it's a marriage proposal. I have faith in this woman, or I have faith in this man, that they will continue to be good in the way that I have seen them be good up to this point. You have taken evidence to such a point that you've basically walked to the top of a hill, and that hill is the evidence, and now you are ready to take the leap into the lake or river below you, which is your act of faith. I think it's exactly the same way with God. What do the religious people do with faith? And this, by the way, has led more people than just Christians astray from what I think faith is. It has also given non-Christians, atheists in particular, a lovely cudgel to smack religion with because really they don't have the right idea of what faith is in fact when people try to say that faith is just this ethereal removed spiritual special god-given gift blah 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 what they're really doing is they are making it completely unattainable because nobody knows what the crap it is if faith is that un non-understandable then we don't really have any basis upon which to say that somebody has faith or doesn't have faith. 
How many people have been so deeply disappointed by the so-called faith-filled preachers who ended up being deeply corrupt or having terrible relationships? Do we really think that people, quote, of faith are going to live such corrupt lives as that? And then our definitions get thrown into a tizzy. Of course they do. So we can only try to connect the idea of faith to people who are high up in the ranks of the faithful people, among Christians, that kind of a thing. We have to, of course, because without any clear definition, we have to have some kind of a foundation. And then, of course, inevitably, some or if not all of those people disappoint us and show us that they're not really living the life. If, on the other hand, faith is defined as that which is the leap based on the basis of evidence, then evidence is the primary thing. And you can, in fact, scrutinize people on the basis of your definition and call people for yourself faith, faithful or not faithful. People who are deserving of faith and people who are not deserving of faith. If your definitions are understandable, then you don't have to look for examples first. You know the definition and can find the examples and whether or not they are in fact consistent. This is the basis again of what I think it is to have faith in God. You can read the scriptures. You can understand how God behaves in the lives of people. See how it actually goes and decide if you will have faith in God on the basis of whether or not he is faithful. Now, I want to take a brief digression here and point out the fact that, yes, God does tell us in no uncertain terms that he is far beyond us. Absolutely. For sure. His ways are not our ways. Who can understand the mind of God, etc., etc.? I have no problem with that. Omnipotence and omniscience, unreachable. I get it. No problem. That doesn't mean that when God is trying to explain something to us, that he makes it baffle gab. He makes it so unattainable, so strange, so weird, that we can't possibly hope to understand what the crap he's saying. When God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, they were pretty clear. They're not really that far beyond us. It's taken a great deal of, in my opinion, piety, for example, and what I mean by that is suicidal piety, to take something as simple as do not bear false witness against your neighbor and turn it into something as, as silly as just don't ever lie. That's ridiculous. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor is really specific. Do not lie is, in my opinion, the attempt to try to be more holy than God ever told us to be. And this is another example, in my opinion, of what suicidal piety really looks like. I've mentioned it already, things like fasting and so on, but I have a pertinent and very recent example. Masturbation. The, around, the stimulation of oneself without a partner. Sexually, right? Orgasming, whatever, whatever. Is it a sin or isn't it? This is a fairly active debate among Christians, but most would agree, and I think this is a travesty, that masturbation is a sin. I would put a qualifier on that. I think that masturbation as an addiction is a sin. But masturbation as such 
there's no scripture for that. How many people even know that? I've read the Bible quite a number of times, thought about it quite a bit. I've listened to sermons. I've gone through studies. Masturbation as sin is nowhere in the Bible. Addictions as sins, idols as sins, absolutely. And this, by the way, is why I think masturbation as addiction, masturbation gone too far, is certainly sinful. Because, it's an, because an addiction is an idol is a sin. That seems fairly clear-cut to me. But a lot of Christians will tell you that any kind of masturbation is sin. Uh, scripture, please. They don't have any. The closest scripture that I can find to anything even closely resembling this is that in the Old Testament, in, I believe, Exodus and Leviticus, it is recorded that any emission from the body, and I've mentioned this very recently as well, um, such as eczema, a emission of semen, or the emission from a, a woman in her period, makes them ceremoniously unclean. Now, if they were to go to the temple and perform ceremonies, such as sacrifice, while they were emitting, that would have been a sin. Or, well, Sorry, not while they were emitting, while they had recently emitted. That would have been a sin. But the emission itself, well, they just had to wash themselves and they were clean. And then they could go to a ceremony or do a ceremony. That's the closest thing that I can find in the scriptures that makes masturbation itself anywhere adjacent to sin, but not a sin in and of itself. Now, an argument I heard recently, which I find respectable but still incorrect, is masturbation is a sin because the purpose for sexuality in human beings is marital union and sex with your spouse. Not even necessarily the production of children, which I think is a good distinction to make. But because it's for a spouse, therefore to stimulate yourself without a spouse is sinful. Okay, once again, where are you getting that? How do you know that the purpose of human sexuality is only and exclusively to have sexual, sexual relations with your spouse and that's it. Is that written anywhere? Is that pointed out in scripture? As far as I know, the only people that would say such a thing are those who are relying on human tradition, not on truth claims from the scripture or from Christ, God, even Paul or Peter. It's not anywhere written. In fact, the topic of masturbation is barely touched on in the scriptures as a whole. It's almost completely ignored. The fact of human sexuality is not. The penis, the vagina, these things through, um, what's the word? Euphemisms are mentioned often, and by the way, in the context of praise. It's very elevated, in fact through particularly the Old Testament. The New Testament certainly gives its own credence, and it's largely a quotation of the Old Testament. But anyway, masturbation as such, not really mentioned. Now, looking at this argument, which I think is very faulty, 
Again, I think it's respectable in its own way. I understand the goal. The goal is essentially a kind of piety, right? You're trying to take that which is not at all clear through theology, particularly through the Bible, and try to basically up the ante. Masturbation, not talked about as a sin, specifically. The purpose of human sexuality, not specifically pointed out as only and exclusively being with a spouse. But this person was trying to be extremely pious by upping the ante and going even further. Maybe even thinking about Christ when he said, for example, that anybody, any man who looks upon a woman and lusts after her um, essentially sins. I can't remember the rest of how he says it, but goes against the commandment not to commit, not to commit adultery. That's how it goes. So clearly a sin, right? Anyway, what this argument actually does, if it's to be believed, and this goes into the church in general and its views on sex and sexuality, it takes people who are genuinely struggling with these things on a daily basis or a weekly basis and so on and so forth and telling them, you do bad. You sin. You are guilty. You bad. Shame on you. On the basis of what? Nothing. Nothing that can be ironclad. Nothing that can be clearly argued with evidence, with foundation. Unless, again, you're just going to human tradition. Churches. That kind of thing. Religion. What does that do to the people who are struggling with these things? They get mired in a sense of guilt if they believe it, if they're trying to be good Christians. And what does that guilt do? If they can't make peace with their own selves sexually, and that, by the way, happens both in and outside of marriage. If they can't make peace with themselves, if they can't understand themselves sexually and just, I don't know, get these things under control. Then the fact of the matter is they're just going to keep going on with a sense of guilt. And that sense of guilt bogs them down. Now, let's say that they begin to listen a little bit to other philosophies, other beliefs, other perhaps even religions that are perfectly fine with human sexuality. They embrace it openly. They're perfectly okay with it. In fact, they even praise it. This person who's constantly going on in a sense of guilt based on really nothing Hearing these arguments from perhaps atheists who think that sexuality is great, who have no problem with masturbation, how attractive is that philosophy to somebody mired in this guilt? If they, believe, if they choose to believe that philosophy and drop their so-called Christianity, all that guilt goes away. In an instant, on a dime, it's gone. How we're leaving. See, most people who are struggling with this kind of thing just can't get out of it, just can't figure it out. Oh, gee, I wonder why that could be. Could it be that the argument is wrong? That it's not based on anything concrete? But the fact that they can't just get past it, the fact that they can't figure out how to be so holy, well, they start perhaps looking for other things. Or if they stay Christians, they're mired in the sense of guilt. They're afraid. They're jumpy, especially anytime the topic of sexuality comes up. 
people who are carrying along with them this constant sense of guilt are very difficult to get to know. Because anytime you start tapping into, especially, by the way, if you're trying to become their spouse, anytime you start getting near these topics, suddenly they don't want to talk about anything, perhaps, for some reason. Or at the very least, not that. They might get angry, defensive, sad, might start crying. Put up some sort of defensive structure to get you to shut up. Don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. Don't, don't talk about it. Don't unveil my sense of guilt. My opinion on these kinds of arguments that take that which is not clearly denoted as a sin and say, this is a sin, you are bad if you do this, is horrible. It's suicidal to Christianity itself. It's suicidal piety. What you're really doing is the same thing as bafflegab among the intellectuals. What is bafflegab among intellectuals? Bafflegab, or high speech, is the kind of way that intellectuals will use polysyllabic five and ten dollar words, lingo, to make themselves feel more special than they actually are. If they can use this lingo that nobody understands, epistemology, metaphysics, Kantian, Jungian, etc., etc., they can feel good about themselves without giving anything of value to those who are listening to them. If they're not part of the creme de la creme, part of the in crowd, the intellectuals who are so special. This kind of piety just keeps people out. The only people who get to remain are those who are just as pious. Those who are just as special, just as holy, just as high. The behavior of God is directly the opposite. God approaches us just like any good teacher does, just as Jesus did. Yeah, they might acknowledge that they know more than we do. That's the reason why they bring it down to our level and put it in bite-sized portions and help us to understand. They meet us where we are as human beings. When it comes to sexuality, as C.S. Lewis rightly points out, Christianity is the most body-positive religion on the market. He's exactly right. All this fear and guilt that the so-called pious put within us by trying to be more holy than God even has ever instructed us to be, or by making definitions of things like faith so completely unapproachable, all they really do is form cliques. All they really do is chase people away. It does, in the end, in my opinion, the very opposite of what piety was supposed to do in the first place. It takes it so far beyond what was ever even suggested, ordered, talked about, commanded by God, that regular common people, for some odd reason, just don't really care for it anymore. I wonder why. The piety that God wants to inspire in us, in my opinion, 
is the piety that makes things attractive, makes things good, obviously of good, good quality. Just read again in the book of Exodus the instructions to build the tabernacle. It was gorgeous, full of very high-value stuff, gold, violet, very expensive at the time, scarlet. I'm talking mostly about the threads of the curtains and that kind of thing, of the tent itself. Gold, 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 silver, gold, 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 gold. Gorgeous stuff. Some of the most expensive things that could ever be dedicated to a religious cause or a worship of a god at the time. Yeah, it's designed to make it attractive. The so-called pious make things so far removed that they become detestable to regular people. Like the 300 words. Oh, they're special Holy Spirit words. Nobody can possibly understand them. No, actually, they were common words. If you believe that they're super removed words that nobody except the super religious can possibly understand, what does that do? It makes only the creme de la creme, the centrally religious, most pious people, those who are capable of having even the slightest inkling of an understanding of what they actually mean. When you discover that it's common speech, then it's approachable to everyone. Nobody's really left out. It's so common that a 15-year-old who's just learning the slang of the streets, and I don't mean curse words, I mean slang in its proper definition, can approach holy writ. Holiness, the way we use it as humans, is only useful up to a point. The way to be holy, as far as I understand it, is to be virtuous and good. But holiness, the way it is understood by Christians, religious people in general, is only useful up to a certain point. And when you go beyond that point to try to be so holy, you ruin it. You ruin it because you are trying to be better than God ever told you to be. And what you actually do as a result is you become worse than God ever told you to be. It is, once again, a perfect way to become a Pharisee. So I hope that gives you all a lot of good things to think about, as always. Until next time.